0: good to be with you today and and sharing from God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Esther. So turn there, if you would. Uh, We're going to go through the whole book of Esther this morning. And this is the first time, actually first service was the first time, but this is the first time I've ever gone through a book in one setting. So um, uh, we're going to take a look at a number of verses, key verses in uh, several of the chapters and draw the insights and counsel of God for our our lives and for this church this morning. I was with uh, a number of years ago. I was at a pastor's conference. And uh, I want to give the credit to Greg Laurie because I think it was him that was speaking. And he had a short prayer for us. And he said uh, his prayer was, Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so... uh, (laughs) You're either one of those two places. You're either in need of being comforted or you're in need of being afflicted. Now, for me, uh, I came up on crutches today. I've been afflicted. Uh, I had the opportunity. Um, I skied. Our family skied for like 25 years, and Jeremy came to me a while back in December, and he said, Hey, Dad, I'm taking the family skiing. And he said, uh, Would you like to go? And I said, Yeah, I, I think I would. And he said... Uh, When you get a certain age, like your age, you ski for free. (laughs) I couldn't pass it up, so I had a great day of skiing, but uh, I had to pay for those. Those weren't free. So I've been recuperating, and uh, I haven't been able to do anything. It's been just a, a, a difficult time for me just to sit in a lazy boy chair with my leg up. Now, that sounds... Like, maybe you'd like to do that, but I'll tell you what, you get tired of it, and I am tired of it, but my, my wife of 52 years has made it so easy, it's like, I don't know, I can maybe drag this out a little longer. <laughs> um, Sue has been amazing. It's almost like she's telepathic. She knows what I need before I even say it, and uh, that's what happens when you get married so young. It's just kind of like you start thinking the same, um, and I've just been so blessed. So First Service gave her applause. I won't ask you to do that, but she... You're too kind. The, uh, as a wife and as a helpmeet, and as a life partner, you, um, you appreciate those things. They're not required, they're given. So uh, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, we come to you to look into your word this morning for what you have to speak to us. Let our hearts um, just be a tablet for you to write into your grace, your love, and your plan. And Lord, as we, as we look at your word, there's a fullness of counsel. There's a provision that's there as we look at Esther and Mordecai. And there's a plan. There's nothing left to chance. And our lives are the same. You have left nothing to chance. You have a a plan for every single moment of our lives. May may we be found in that place, Lord, to be of use for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So as we look at the book of Esther, it, it reflects our time, our culture. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, is evident, and, and we hear about it, and, and there's even been a celebration of, of evil uh, in the attack upon Israel of recent, as recent as this last October. The book of Esther is about anti-Semitism. It's about hatred for the Jews. Why is that? They are God's chosen people. In the last days, there will be deception. Deception will abound, yet knowledge will increase. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. How does that happen? Deception, and yet knowledge increase. Well, the deception is people turning away from God and being deceived by the, very, by the enemy and by the message of the enemy, and knowledge abounding, it's artificial intelligence. There's things that are happening that are, that are amoral uh, in, in the realm of technology, and, um, and it's abounding on all levels. Jesus said in the end times there would be wars and, wor- and rumors of wars. For this, many, time, many people are a little uneasy talking about end times. It causes them to be anxious or even fearful. And there's been a, perhaps even a reluctance in some churches to teach about the end times. But you know what? We're living in the end times. And Jesus said, as it would be in the end times, there would be wars and rumors of wars. You don't have to look very far. See, there's a war going on in Israel that could explode and become something much greater. Our leadership in America is so weak that you have other powers that are looking upon the weakness of our leadership at this time engaging when they're going to take their next exploits in the battlefield. That shouldn't cause you to be uneasy. It should cause you to be prepared. It should cause you to be in a place of preparation for these last days. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, there would be... Lawlessness, drunkenness, and there would be immorality. We see that happening around us. We see our society becoming drunk on pleasure, making choices and decisions that are far from the values that we were, our, our, our nation was, was based upon. And we're going away from God, but he always preserves a remnant of which you are a part. And it's f- for that reason that we are here for such a time as this. In the last song that we sang, there was a reference of of God as the king of all days. And this day, he is the king. Just as he was the king in the biblical times, he is the king today. And he's the king over all. And we are his servants. And he has a purpose for us. Israel is God's prophetic timepiece. There was a time back in the late 1800s a man by the name of Theodore Herzl, had a a dream for the people, the Jews, to go back to the Bible lands and occupy the lands described in the Bible, the promised land. A number of years passed, and at the end of World War II, it was declared that Israel would become a country once again. That's God's timepiece, Israel. He's not through with them. They are his chosen people. If Israel is God's timepiece, the clock on which we observe, then Jerusalem is the hour hand. When it was declared that the Jews could go back and that they would have this country, that the the world would would recognize this territory, they did not have the opportunity to go into Jerusalem. Not until the Six Day War. There was a war that happened on the on the Sabbath the Muslim countries and the Arabic countries gathered together and attacked Israel on their Sabbath. They were caught off guard, unprepared. But they quickly assembled, and with God's power, God's strength, they defeated the enemies around them. And there were a number of years that passed, another six years. And there was the Yom Kippur War, the most holy day on the calendar of the feast, and the Arabs attacked again, caught them off guard. They quickly assembled. They were outnumbered. The Arabic uh, countries, the Egyptians, were coming down upon them. It seemed a hopeless battle, but God prevailed, and they prevailed. And now they, they have access into Jerusalem. If Israel is God's timepiece, then Jerusalem is the hour hand. And the Temple Mount is the Minitan. The Temple Mount is currently occupied by the Dome of the Rock Mosque. One of the most holiest sites in all of Islam. But yet, that's the the Temple Mount. And someday, there's going to be another temple built there. But it's going to come with some things that predicate that, and we're on the threshold of that today. It's an exciting time. And so... It could have been any time in history, but right now, to this day, the king of all days has seen fit that we should be here for such a time as this. Esther is part of the 12 historical books. The Old Testament, the 39 books are made up in certain divisions. The first five books are the books of the law. There's the 12 historical books. Then there's the five books of poetry, the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. The distinction between the minor and the major prophets is not that one is more important than the other or that one was older than the other, the minors, um, but only in the length of the books. So the five major prophets are longer in, um, in their contents, but uh, no less significant are the 12 minor prophets. The title of the message this morning is Why Now? And the key verse to me, in this whole book, is for such a time as this. The timing of, uh, of the book, while Esther is the last of the historical books in the, in the divisions of Scripture, it actually falls between Ezra and Nehemiah, halfway between Ezra, halfway between Nehemiah. The king, Ahasuerus, is also known as Xerxes or Artaxerxes in, uh, in Nehemiah. It's the current uh, country of Iran. And the book opens up with Artaxerxes, um, As- um, Asherus, having a celebration. It's six months in duration. Six months of celebration of, fe- of feasts and festivities. And he's displaying his wealth um, of the Medes and the Persians. That's uh, the king, ah- ah- Asherus. And so he has a six-month celebration going on, and the key event happening around each day of the, fe- of the feast and of the festivities is the consumption of wine. And so they're drinking to their pleasure, and this is ongoing for six months. You would think there were, that would be, you know, one or two days. That's like, how long can you go? And, and yet for six months they kept this thing going. Finally, after six months he decides to cut it loose and have uh, the, the last seven-day feast for all the provinces. He has 127 provinces in his kingdom. And they're all, the, the nobles and the, and the dignitaries are all there, the princes, and they're gathered together for the last seven days. Now they've been drinking, and he's shown them all his wealth, all his power, all the splendor, all of his riches. And the last thing he can think of is Vashti. queen. She is beautiful beyond compare. And so you know the guys all sitting around there in their drunken stupor say well why don't you have her come over here and we'll decide how beautiful she is. And so the king calls for Vashti. Hey come and be a part of this celebration. I want everyone to see who you are. Now here's the thing about the king of Persia, Artaxerxes Artaxerxes uh, Ahasuerah, is that the law of the Medes and Persians is such that whatever is spoken by this king is law. You don't refuse him, nor do you access him without his invitation. And so he's given invitation for Vashti to come to the court and be a part of the celebration. There's a, in the Ten Commandments, there's a line that I've always remembered. Yul Brenner delivered it, and uh, it, was, it was in relation to his authority as Pharaoh. He says, so let it be written, so let it be done. Well, that's kind of Asheruus. He's like, if I say it, it's going to be done. So he invites Vashti, but she goes, she's kind of had enough, six months And now you want to bring me as a trophy to parade around? I don't think so. And you kind of see her point. I mean, enough is enough. I can side with that, but I don't know how good a decision that was because maybe she thought, well, he's so drunk, he won't remember, so, you know, no harm, no foul. But we find that actually um, he's aware of her refusal. So he's angered by that. And his advisors come around him, and they give him a little advice. Chapter 1, verse 19. Let's look at that. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And she just lost her position. She made a decision, but now she's going to lose her position in the court. She's no longer going to be the queen. So what's the plan of his advisors? The advisors recommend, hey, king, go out amongst all your provinces, the 127. Find the most beautiful young maidens. Have like a beauty contest. Bring them into the court, and you make a decision who will be the next queen. He goes, that doesn't sound so bad. So I like that. So he sends out his his emissaries, and they go out, and they start looking and and having these little mini beauty contests, and they bring in the best of the best into the courts. Now, not only do they do that, there's some time that passes um, from this decree, but they have a one-year time frame of going to the beauty shop, the day spa. The first six months of their beauty spa, their There is to, to have aroma therapy. They're getting all these fragrances and perfumes for six months, and the next six months are skin and beauty treatments. So he has these young maidens with a year of day spas, where they go every day and get beautified. That's I've never gone to a a beauty spa before, but (laughs) I can't imagine, you know, that a whole year of going to the beauty spa and having these wonderful treatments. And so we find that Esther is amongst those that is chosen. Now, has it been an easy life for Esther? No, she's an orphan. Her parents had had passed, and she was now living with her, her father's nephew, which would make him her cousin. That happened to be Mordecai. Mordecai brought her in and was raising her as though she were his own daughter. And while he's raising her, these emissaries come about and they see Esther and they go, hey, she's pretty good looking. I think she might fit what the king is looking for. So she is now in the court of the king. She is amongst those maidens waiting to have their interview, their time with the king, and to see if she is chosen or selected to become the queen. In that time frame... There are other events that are happening um, in the background. Mordecai tells Esther, do not let them know that you are Jewish. It might cause a rejection. And when things are as, when, when they're gauging things on the slightest imperfection, that might have you removed. So just keep that quiet. Keep that a secret. So, Let's look in Esther chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her people, the Jews, or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And let's drop down to verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat with the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bithen and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Mordecai happens to be keeping an eye on things there by the gates, making sure that things are fine with Esther. But while he's there, he overhears these two guards, these two eunuchs in the court of the king, plotting to kill the king. He goes, this is not a good situation. So he sends for he sends a messenger to Esther and he gives her the message, hey, look, there's two guards out here. There's two guys at the gates who have a plan. They want to take him out, take out King Ahasuerus. And I just think that maybe he might want to know that. And so he says, mention it to the king. So Esther has this opportunity to speak with King Ahasuerus, tells him about these two, gu- these two guards at the gates. The king investigates it, finds out that it's true. She tells him that it's Mordecai that has passed on the information. These two guys are, t- are hung in the gallows. They're removed. And then he takes and he suggests, he says, let's write this down in the Chronicles. Now the Chronicles are not books of law. They're just kind of a diary or a journal of things that are happening that that are relative to the security of the country, his life, different things. And he writes them down in the Chronicles. Something that he might read at some point when he gets bored. So Mordecai's name is written in the Chronicles, but that's it. There's no other fanfare. There's no other acknowledgement as far as Mordecai is concerned. But the king is safe, and Esther has found favor with the king. Now, in chapter 3, Haman is in the court of the king, and he's promoted over all the other princes. He's gaining, gaining in notoriety. He's gaining in significance. And as he... As he goes through the, through the town, <clears throat> through the community there, he's expecting people to bow, and they do, <clears throat> knowing that he is an emissary of the king and knowing the power of the king Ahasuerus. <clears throat> it makes sense, someone that close to the king, you should probably give him recognition and acknowledge his authority. So as he goes through the town, Mordecai is standing there. Sorry, my voice is getting scratchy. Mordecai is standing there, and he sees him, and he refuses to bow. Now, what could Mordecai be thinking? You know, this can only lead to a serious situation. And it does. So Haman becomes infuriated with with Mordecai and he begins to hatch this plan. The plan that Haman has is to kill him. But Mordecai reveals that he is a Jew. That's why he won't bow. And so Haman decides not only will I kill Mordecai, And his household, but I will kill all the Jews in all the 127 provinces. He had a hatred for the Jews. (coughs) At the beginning of chapter 3, we find that Haman is an Agagite. What is an Agagite? Sounds like a metal rock or something out of metallurgy. Well, it's a descendant of Agag. (coughs) And who is Agag? Well, he was an Amalekite. And who are the Amalekites? They were a people when God delivered Israel out of captivity from Egypt. While they were in the wilderness, the Amalekites would attack them when they were most vulnerable. They tried to prevent them from going into the promised land. And God saw this. So as Israel went into the promised land and they were established, um, God was taking care of those enemies And he told Saul, who was the king at the time, King Saul, he said, go and destroy the Amalekites, everything. Let nothing survive. It is a judgment of God upon them. Saul fulfills this command. Samuel's walking up. And as he walks up, he asks Saul, he says, what did God command you? And he says, oh, to go and vanquish the Amalekites. And this I have done. And Samuel says, now wait a minute. What's that bleeding of sheep and the lowing of the cattle in the background? Oh, that's the best. I saved the best. We could have it for a feast. It's the best. And Samuel said, obedience is better than sacrifice. What have you done? And who is this over here? Oh, that's Agag. He's the king. I saved him. Saul. Samuel took care of Agag. He died that day, but it seems that there were descendants that survived, and here we find one of them, Haman, an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. The Amalekites are a symbol in the in in the Old Testament of the flesh. It, And the enemy uses the flesh. at At our weakest point, he's afflicting us and wanting us to stumble. The enemy comes against us and uses that and trying to prevent us and cause us to lose sight of the blessed promise that God has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's afflicting us. That's the flesh. We are to be crucified with Christ so that we might live fully in his spirit so that it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in in me, in us, in each of us, his church, his bride. So Haman is angered, and we see that perhaps Mordecai, Mordecai understood that Haman was a descendant of Agag, and he would not bow before him. That's why Mordecai would not bow. That's why Haman, he was so angered. He sought not to only destroy Mordecai, but all the Jews. How evil, how corrupt, how diabolical. Haman, because he has access to the king, approaches him. Let's read in chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai, who is out in the courts, has heard this decree he is beside himself, he is wearing sackcloth and ashes, he has ripped and torn his clothes, he is in agony, that the Jews are going to be killed and destroyed. The messengers that have been in the, in the square have seen and observed Mordecai, and they've come to Queen Esther, and they said, hey, something's going on with Mordecai. And so she asked, what's going on? She's not aware that this decree has happened in the courts, but she's about to become aware. Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? whether you you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them, the messengers, to reply to Mordecai. Verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink, for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so... I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. This is a time of decision. Things have been going pretty well for Queen Esther. She won the beauty, the beauty contest. She is the queen. But now, Mordecai calls her to a place to disclose who she is and to make a plea for the people. Mordecai chose not to bow before Haman. It kind of makes you go back and think about in Daniel, there was a statue that was built by Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 3, he required everyone to bow before his statue. He had a dream there was only one who could interpret the dream. It was Daniel. And Daniel interpreted the dream. Babylon was the greatest of the kingdoms upon the earth at that time. Babylon was the head of gold. There was a uh, a center section that was silver. That's the Medes and the Persians. They were not a threat to Babylon at that time. But now they have defeated Babylon. And they are the succeeding kingdom of power and authority. The next kingdom was bronze, and it's Greece. And following Greece were legs of iron, which is Rome. And the last, the feet of iron and clay, a federation of countries that out of which will come one, the Antichrist. Isn't that amazing that Daniel in chapter 2 laid out this, this, whole, this dream, God revealed it to this Pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't understand it. Daniel understood it perfectly. The king Nebuchadnezzar, thinking that it's something of to recognize his empire, he builds a statue of gold and calls all to worship and bow down. But like Mordecai, there were three children of Israel, prophets, along with Daniel that were there in captivity. And when the king made this declaration, everyone bowed down. Three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not bow. Nebuchadnezzar says, for this, I have created a burning, fiery furnace, and I'm going to cast you in there. Okay, if that's what you want to do. So they were cast into the fiery furnace, And Nebuchadnezzar looked in there. Instead of them yelling and screaming, he saw them walking around talking with one another. He was blown away. I would be too. Nothing burned, not even their clothes. That that was a fiery furnace. It was burning everything inside. The only thing to burn were the ropes that bound them. They're walking around. God delivered them. Haman has made a declaration that the Jews will die, they will perish. He's taken time to hatch this plan. He's gone and he's received a decree. Mordecai is agonizing unless there is intervention. And he goes to Queen Esther and he says, you have a possible solution. You have access to the king. We implore you to go to him and talk to him. Now she goes, she says, wait a minute. He has a golden scepter. And if you go to the king unannounced and he points that scepter at you, you can be put to death. I can die because I'm going to the king uninvited. And Mordecai doesn't let her off a hook. He says, look, for such a time as this, God has raised you up and you are now the queen and you have access to the king. You need to go to him. And so what does she say? If I perish, I perish. She was willing to step up to the plate. She was willing to go there and risk it all. So in chapter 5, Esther approaches the king, and he looks at her, and he's, he's elated that she's there. He's so happy that she's there. She is spared. She is not going to be uh, put to death. She has found acceptance, and so the king allows her to approach him and then says, "Esther, I don't know why you're here, but I'm so glad you're here. I will give you anything that you ask, even up to half of the kingdom. Half of the kingdom. The most he just done. He just a couple of years before had a celebration that lasted six months of the wealth and the power of the kingdom." You can have half of it if you but ask. I mean, Esther has found favor, but she doesn't, she doesn't ask at that point for her people. She simply says, I would like to have a banquet. I would like to have it soon, and I would like for you, O king, to come to the banquet. And if it's possible, could we have Haman attend as well? Now, Haman, who has political power, authority, and networking on his mind, thinks of all the princes, I by name have been selected to attend with only the king to the queen's palace and attend this banquet. Oh, this is the best day of my life. So Haman goes home. He tells his family what we just talked about. I'm the only one that was invited. She knows me by name. Oh, this couldn't be any better. And so this excitement is crescendoing as Heman is preparing to attend this banquet. Now, he's also preparing, and I'm, we might note that the time of the Feast of Purim, and that's the time of reflecting upon Esther and God's deliverance, for God will deliver. The Feast of Purim is the time of March. We are on the threshold, the Ides of March. and And so the traditional Jewish uh, family will celebrate the Feast of Purim. What is it contained with? There is ritual that goes along with it, one of them, which is drinking. They are allowed to drink to their pleasure. Because why? King Ahasuerus, when he had his six-month celebration, there was a lot of people drinking. So that's part of it. The other is that they would give gifts of food one to another and that they would give gifts to the poor. That's the Feast of Purim. We're in that time of the season, even now, as we come upon the Passover, another Hebrew feast. The feasts have great place in remembrance of God's deliverance for the people that God has chosen. But there's great insight for us as the believer. For we find in the scriptures that the new is in the old contained and the old is in the new explained. Wherever we are looking at in the Old Testament, we can find greater insight through Jesus and the covenant of grace in the New Testament. But whatever we look at in the New Testament, we can find the foreshadowing of God's plan and of His grace, even in the law. So now we live by the covenant of grace. We have known and have experienced God's provision through redemption. Haman is ecstatic. He alone is going to accompany the king. But in the meantime, in preparation for this banquet, in chapter 6, we find the king could not sleep. He was tossing and turning. You ever have a night like that? I was like, what? I need something that will help me go to sleep. And so... He says, hey, can you bring me one of those chronicles that we have hanging up over there on the shelf? So the servant goes and he grabs a chronicle, opens it up. And he starts reading through the chronicles, and surely this will put him to sleep. Pretty boring, old stuff. And what does he read? He reads about these two guards that were at the gates who wanted to assassinate him. And um, there was one named Mordecai, who notified Queen Esther and she told the king and the king's life was spared. So he read that while he was trying to go to sleep and uh, he asked his servants, he said, hey, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? They said, no, we didn't do anything at all. He said, we didn't recognize him. We didn't acknowledge him in any way. Nope, king, not a thing. He goes, oh, well, it's strange that I couldn't sleep, but you know what? As we prepare to go to this banquet, could we do one more thing? I want to recognize Mordecai. I want to acknowledge him. Timing of God. I mean, that's divine intervention because you know what's happening at this same time? Haman is constructing a gallows because it's time now. He wants to hang Mordecai. That's his plan. That's what's happening next as they're getting ready to go to the banquet. And he's about to unleash the decree to go and to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jews in the land and the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So the king has this plan. I want to recognize Mordecai. I want to celebrate a day. This this shouldn't have gone unnoticed. So in chapter 6, let's turn there, chapter 6, verse 6. Haman has been in the outer court. And so Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Watch Haman. Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) It's all about me. That's the world. It's all about me. And Jesus said, deny yourself and come to the cross and follow me. Jesus has called us to to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him and the fullness of him, and he will fill us to overflowing. Not Not to look to the right or to the left for a solution, but to look to the cross and him alone. He is our victory. He is our king. Haman says, who could he be thinking of except for me? So Haman makes a suggestion. He goes, this is all about me. So he says, this is what I think should happen. I think you should have a horse from the royal stable brought to this servant. That servant should be adorned with a royal robe, one that you wear, O king. And there should be a prince from the court of the king who goes before him and takes him amongst the people, proclaiming, this is the one whom the king has found favor And he wears his robe and is seated upon his horse. That's what I would do, O King Ahasuerus. And here's the interesting thing. The king says, you know what? That's really a good plan. Hurry, make haste, and go and tell Mordecai. He's the one that I have chosen to favor can you imagine Haman's, this, this went from the best day of his life to the worst day of his life. And he even had a part in how it was going to play out. So Haman goes, okay. And he goes and he gets Mordecai. Mordecai knows that gallow is being built for him. Here's Haman with a horse from the royal stable, with a robe that he is adorned with. And he goes before him, Haman, declaring Mordecai has found favor with the king. Wow. Well, it doesn't change what Mordecai or what Haman is about to, to, to finish as far as his plot. And so in chapter 7, Haman and the king attend the banquet that has been prepared by Esther. And as they're there... He wants to know, okay, Esther, I told you you could have up to half the kingdom. Esther, what is your petition? What is it that you desire? I told you you could have up to half of the kingdom. And she said, King, my people are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. He goes, what? What do you mean your people? She said, well, I'm Jewish. And there's been a decree that came from your courts by Haman, that says all the Jews should be killed in your kingdom. He goes, I'll have nothing to do with that. Verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? It's Haman. King Ahasuerus looked at him and he says, You have caused this proclamation, this decree to go from my court to kill all the Jews in my kingdom, including even the queen? He left, angered, and Haman begins to plead for his life. When the king comes back, he sees him, and he says, what should I do with you? One of the servants pointed out, and he says, hey, king, look, there's some gallows out there. <laughs> The king looked at Haman and said, that's where you'll spend your last day. And he was hanged in the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai and the execution of annihilation upon all the Jews in the kingdom. Esther was confronted with a choice. Do I I stay quiet? I went from an orphan to a queen but Mordecai called her and said, for such a time as this. Mordecai could have chosen to have not bowed. Or to have bowed, but he chose not to bow. And he stood. And he went from the, from the place of being forgotten in the Chronicles to being celebrated. God did not forget we oftentimes go through these places in life and we wonder, is, is there any glory in this? Is there any honor? Has God forgotten? We feel alone, we feel forgotten. We're human and, we're, and God's busy. He's got a lot on his hands. Maybe he doesn't know. Yes, he knows. He's the God of all days. And he has a plan. And we're living in his plan even now. We're preparing to move to a new facility. It's obvious, we've outgrown this facility. We're in need of a new facility. I was just telling Sue this morning, I don't know why it crossed my mind, but I was invited to be a part of the team to go out and start searching the ground, searching the community, looking for a new place. That was four years ago. It took us two years when we thought all is lost, There's never, we're never going to find a new location, and God gave us a, he pointed us to a location. And now it's been two years of you know, getting zoning and getting permits and going through construction, and we're almost there. And it's like we have arrived. God is going to celebrate our arrival. You know what? <laughs> God has given it to us, this place, the new place, for such a time as this. It's not for us to be comfortable. If we become comfortable, I pray that he afflict us, that we come back to the place of our purpose, our calling. You will be blessed at the new place, but it's only so that we can be better fed, better equipped. Pastor Kevin does an amazing job of feeding, equipping, and preparing us for the battle that is at hand. And so, as we go into this place, we also have a place of responsibility to pray for him in this battle. It's easy to step away. It costs too much. The sacrifice is too great. But for such a time as this, he has called us. He has assembled us, his people, for this hour, for this day, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, in the book of Esther, we have seen your divine intervention. We've seen your plan. We've seen your glory. And we have this blessed hope that we need not fear. In an hour of uncertainty, we need not fear. For you are the king. And we are your church, the bride of Christ, and you have redeemed us. Lord, let us be aware, for such a time as this, you have called us. May we be equipped and prepared to do your calling. And may, Lord, we be prepared to see your return. Even so, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.